Today, I want us to explore our great priority. We worship God honestly. Psalm 96 verse 8, you don't need to turn to it, uh, says this, So worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come before him all the earth. And the Psalms and the Old Testament is full of calls to worship God. But I want to take you to a passage which is a critical passage in the New Testament. As Jesus is about to be taken into heaven, he says something to his disciples that I'd like us to unpack as we explore what it means to have worship as a priority for us. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Has everybody got it? Can you all read it? Everybody has access to it. Great. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. These verses at the end of Matthew's gospel have become known as the Great Commission. And over the next uh, four Sunday mornings, I'm going to take them section by section to help us understand how they impact us if we are to live as people who put God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule, God's power, God's authority first. And this morning, I want to reflect on this whole question of worship. But I want to suggest that they are a commission. In fact, if we have time at some point, I'll talk to you about four commissions that Jesus gives his people through the Gospels. Not just one. I think it's right and proper that this is called the Great Commission. But I think familiarity can breed contempt and some of us can think, oh, the Great Commission, we know what that is. I'd like to suggest to you another name for this, the Great Adventure. These words are the invitation to a life that none of us thought was possible. A life that can take us across the earth. A life that can take us into every sphere of society. That can turn the giving of a glass of cold water upside down. A life that is dignified whether you are a worker in um, a, a worldwide bank as the chief executive. Or you feel as if your job is the most lowly. This commission, this adventure changes the way we view our lives. It helps us to understand that everywhere we go and in everything we do, we radiate and carry the presence of Jesus Christ. I'll get to that um, in the next couple of weeks. It's the first part of it before Jesus instructs them that I want to focus on with you this morning. But for a moment, flick forward in your Bible. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 28 and then flick forward in your Bible to the beginning of the, um, the book of Acts, the story of the early church. I want to read to you just um, a few verses from there. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And we read in verse 6. So when they had come together, that's the disciples, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods 
that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and while they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. John Stott, the great evangelical Anglican, um, who died just a few years ago, took Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, the Great Commission, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the great promise of the power of the Spirit. And he held together what was said at the end of them and said, here is the most wonderful invitation to the Christian community and the most wonderful promise. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus makes a promise to them. Um, I will be with you to the end of time. I will be with you always. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus instructs them and tells them that they will go to the ends of the earth. We stand as the church of Jesus Christ to the end of time and till the end, and we go to the ends of the earth with this great call. Those two great promises hold us together. We stand until the end of time, and we will go to the ends of the earth because of this gospel, because of this hope that has been given to us, this life that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, we are told that the disciples that came with Jesus to a mountain just outside, Gal just outside Jerusalem were ascended. They, were, they watched as Jesus was taken into heaven. But before he went, we are told they worshipped him. And some doubted. That little phrase, they worshipped him and some doubted. Before they could receive his commission, before they could receive his instruction, they were told to worship him. And they worshipped him. They opened their lives to him. I want to answer three basic questions. What is worship? Why does it matter? And what does that mean for us? Why would I choose to describe worship as our great priority? Isn't evangelism our great priority? Isn't disciple-making our great priority? I would want to suggest to you that a clear and straightforward reading of the Bible suggests that worship is our priority. Because out of worship will flow evangelism and flow discipleship and flow faithfulness and flow obedience. There's a, a man that has been writing for a number of years in America called John Piper. And uh, he used to write a lot more about mission than he does now. And a phrase that he wrote, oh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, has stuck in my head. And here it is. Write this down in your notes. Um, uh, evangelism or mission exists because worship doesn't. There will come a point in time and in history, hinted at in Acts chapter 1, when we will no longer need to evangelize. We'll no longer take bread and wine or bread and grape juice as we remember the death of Jesus Christ. They are temporary things. But there will never be an end to worship. It will never stop. Now, 
pause, put a parenthesis or a full stop there for a moment. I, have, I happen to love singing. I love music. I love standing and singing with God's people. But don't allow that to be your definition of worship. I have a friend who loves libraries and books, as do I. And I can remember, and he hates singing. He really hates singing. I mean, he doesn't just dislike it. He hates it. And he listened to a sermon where somebody described heaven as eternal worship. And he said to them at the end, does that mean that I'm going to be in a praise meeting for eternity? He said, I I, I just couldn't fathom. I couldn't cope with that. And the guy that was preaching, it wasn't me, said to him, well, what do you think eternity will feel like? What would heaven look like to you? And he said, heaven to me, now just watch the reaction of you here would be a massive library where I could read as much as I wanted. (laughs) How many of you would that be heaven for? Not many of us, eh? We can often construct an idea of eternity or heaven or what it will look like depending on our preferences and our desires. But we are told very clearly in the Bible that heaven, eternity, our place with Christ will be a place where we are eternally and forever worshiping him. Released and enabled in our full potential to give him praise and glory and honor for all that he is. What is worship? Well, the Greek word that is used in Matthew chapter 28 is linked to the word uh, that means to lie prostrate. It is to give God room. It is to move for him. He is worthy of our movement. It is to pay homage to him, to kneel down before him. You will often see me kneeling at the front. I have this simple Um, principle. If a song says, raise your hands, guess what I'm going to do with my hands? Raise them. Because I'm not going to sing, I raise my hands with them in my pockets, am I? That sounds a bit daft to me. If a song says, I will kneel down and I am still able to, many of you may not be able to do that. As long as I have the strength, if I can kneel when I'm singing, kneeling, I'll kneel. Because my body and its posture indicates something about the attitude of my heart. I remember kneeling once in a, in a really dirty floor in a suit and uh, somebody about three or four uh, rows behind me came and said, you shouldn't be kneeling on the floor, you'll get your trousers dirty. I said, it, makes, it does not matter one jot what my trousers look like. I kneel because when I sing a song that describes you as kneeling, I'm going to kneel. There are many words for worship. Some would argue over 50 in the Bible. But fundamentally, they all come to this idea of giving God place giving him homage, giving him space to move, acknowledging who he is, giving him some kind of um, moment or commitment in our hearts and lives that says you are at the center of all things. In fact, the word that is used for worship here comes from two words. And the second part of it means to kiss. Worship is sometimes described as kissing the feet of Christ. Kissing the hand of Almighty God. It's not the bluster of a song. It's not the emotion of a moment. It is movement in our lives that gives him honor. Some of us can do that without singing a word. Others love to sing. The same word that Matthew uses at the very end of his gospel. He uses at the beginning of it. Go back for a moment with me to the first mention of the word worship in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 2. The visit of the wise men. These magi or wise men were probably 
people that had been left behind in, um, in Babylon when Israel had returned from its captivity in 537. They hadn't gone with them. And they carried a vestige of Jewish understanding in their heads and in their hearts. And they remained there. And 500 years, 550 years later, they come looking for the Christ that has been promised to them. Listen to verse 2. Asking, where is the child who was born king of the Jews? For we observed his star and at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. That's the word worship. Then verse 8. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me a word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. That's Herod lying through his teeth. And then verse 11. On entering the house, they, that's the wise men, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. To worship is to pay God homage. It's not just about singing, it's about what we do with our lives. Now, to help us understand what it is, there is a principle in Hebrew theology called the principle of first mention. So when you read of a great idea or a great conviction or a great truth, you trace back in the Hebrew Bible to the first time that it is mentioned. And you understand the context in which it is mentioned so that you can then apply it into your heart and into your life. When is the word worship first used in the Bible? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 22. If you flick back to that with me, you will discover that that is the powerful story of Abraham being commanded by God to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. Starting at verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The first mention of love between a father and a son. And it's the story of a father being asked to sacrifice the son that he loves. Does that ring any bells as we come to communion in about 15 or 20 minutes? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. And, when his, and, and his son Isaac, he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he said, here I am, my son. In Hebrew, here I am, my darling boy, if you want to be affectionate. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And you may or may not know the rest of the story, but just at the moment when Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, God intervenes and says, don't do it, Isaac. Don't do it, Abraham. I've seen your heart. The first mention of the word worship tells us so much about it. In this moment, God says to Abraham, Give me the very center of your heart, Abraham. 
And that will involve sacrifice, faith, trust, and obedience. They're the elements of worship that we are called to emulate in our lives. Now, I have to stop for a moment and confess something to you here. I wouldn't have done what Abraham did because I haven't got that gift of faith. I get tired of preachers who presume or suggest that they have as much faith or as much uh, trust as the great saints that are described in the Old and the New Testament. Preachers that say, I would have sacrificed my son too. Really? I'm not sure. You see, Abraham was the father of us all for a reason. He had the capacity to trust God at a level that I have never experienced. He had the ability to put God first to such an extent that he was willing to go all the way to this point. And you hear the hint of it when he says to his, um, the young men, his servants in verse 5, we will go and worship and we will return. He knew that God was about something. He knew that God would somehow make good what he was doing. He had that fundamental trust. We don't know what that looked like. Did he know that God would intervene? Or did he believe that if his son died, God would bring him back to life? Somewhere in the mix of this man's trust and faith, he had a fundamental conviction that God would honor him if he obeyed God. That's worship. Honoring God because he's asked us to. Putting him first, because he's asked us to. Giving him space, because he's asked us to. Recognizing that he is great and we are not. Worship is fundamentally about putting God first. And it's not just about singing, although I'm not one of those people that say that singing isn't important. For me, singing is vitally important. Every great revival of the church has been marked by a movement of singing. (laughs) So let me ask you something. Do you put God first? Webster's Dictionary of 1828 describes worship as honoring God with extravagant love and extreme submission. It's our great priority because we can only flourish as a church and as individuals, as human beings, if we let God be who God claims to be. If we put him at the center and let him shape our priorities, then biblically we will flourish. That doesn't mean everything will go well for us. It means that everything will go well for our soul. There's a difference. We can fill our services with old hymns and new hymns. We can fill our lives with music. We can fill our lives with poems and prayers and litanies. We can fill our whole experience as a church family with being the trendiest and the best music bands and preachers and um, uh, engagement. We can fill it with everything. But if God isn't at the center of it, if it isn't him, then we are not building something that will last. It's our priority because it is only by worshiping God and putting him at the center that we allow our our lives to revolve around him. By the way, some people might say, well, does worship change through the Bible? Mm. If the principle of first priority is helpful, then we're not going to read it, but consider this. If the first mention of worship is in Genesis chapter 22, then the first song recorded in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 15. 
And it's the song of Moses as they have crossed the Red Sea and entered the promised, the edge of the promised, uh, entered the wilderness. And uh, he stops and he rejoices at God's faithfulness. And almost the last song in the Bible is the song of Moses, recorded in Revelation chapter 15, where we are told that there are two songs that will be sung in heaven, the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses. Worship doesn't change in its priorities. It doesn't change it may change in how we express it. It may change in what we do, but it's fundamentally and remains the same. We honor God. We put him at the center of our lives. Whether you're singing in a 500-piece robed choir, raising your hands with um, a, a thousands of people in front of you, you're standing or sitting in your room in a guitar, or you're sitting under a tree with a book open, or you're choosing what to do with your bank balance or how to live, worship remains the same. It is to give God his place and to let him have his way in your life and to walk in obedience with him. I want to suggest to you that in worship, we enter God's presence, the presence that is always around us, and somehow his glory touches us. Too many of us think that we worship God so that things will get better for us. That's not the reason. It's entirely possible to worship God in your life to remain troubled. There's no guarantee that in worshiping God, your circumstances will change. But there is a guarantee that in worshiping God, your perspective will change. And that's the important thing. As I worship God, I focus my attention away from myself and onto him, and I begin to see things through his lens. So even if my future is bleak in earthly terms, when I worship God, my future becomes full of light and hope because I remind myself that he is there. Do you know, I hate missing church, not because I'm a church addict. My father, who wasn't a Christian and had lived for many years as an alcoholic, um, once said to me, the only difference between me and you is I'm addicted to whiskey and you're addicted to church. That's not true. I'm not addicted to church, but I am addicted to Jesus. When I stand with his people and worship in his presence, something changes in the way I see the world. I'm reminded of a bigger, better story. Where is God's glory now? It's in this room. It's with you at work on Monday morning. It's with you in college. It's with you at university. His glory is always there. But as we worship him, we somehow are able to access it in a different way. We become aware of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14, at the dedication of the temple. We're told that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And yet we are told again and again in the Bible that the glory of the Lord is all around us. God's glory is here. It's in worshiping that we become aware of it. It's in worshiping that we enter it in a felt and experienced way, in, a, in an awareness kind of way that changes our priorities. In Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, around about 7... 60 BC, this northern, this southern prophet was sent by God to prophesy to the north. I wonder what would happen if God did that here. He challenges, if I ever get a map, I'll show you. If I was to put on a screen behind me, all the nations of, excuse my back, but it is, is somebody want to just go to make sure that our brother's okay? Um, if I was to show you a map, you would see that Amos begins here with, um, not everybody needs to go, but those that are, 
Those that are nurses and medics might be able to go. Remind me of my brother's name. Pardon? Ian. Lord, we just want to pray for Ian now. Would you bless him in the heat? And would you give him a sense of your presence and your peace? Thank you that you're with him. Thank you for all those folk that are going to help him. Bless them too. Thank you for the nurses and the doctors in our church. Amen. If you were to look at a map, you would see that Amos begins condemning and challenging the nations that are furthest away from um, Israel, challenging them in how they're behaving and the way they're living. And he moves around in a big spiral in towards them, getting closer and closer to them. It's a bit like somebody coming to me and I having, I don't know, a, a strong preference for always being right and a list of people that I don't like. And somebody comes to me, Davy comes to me and says, Malcolm, God has something to say about the people that, you leak, that, that are seventh on your list of liking them least. And he tells me, and I say, fantastic, I love it when God agrees with me. And then he says, and he's got something, and each time Amos says, he's got two things. And he's got two things against the people that are sixth on your list. <laughs> this is fantastic. And fifth on your list, and fourth, and third, and second. By the time it gets to second, I'm just like, you know, I am so in tune with God, it's amazing. All my preferences he likes and all my disagreements he agrees with. How, how faithful am I? And then Amos says, but he has most against you. And that's what the southern prophet says to the northern kingdom. God has most against you. And you know what it revolves around? Shallow worship. Translating worship into services and meetings and songs and symbols and festivals and missing the bigger point. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God speaking to the northern kingdom. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice rule down like rivers, waters, and righteousness, like a never-ending stream. That's the heart of worship. Living a life that reflects the purpose and the priorities of God. Letting our decisions about justice and righteousness being shaped, be shaped by what God says about us. If I took you which, to Washington DC today, there is a huge semicircular, bright, shining um, wall. It's the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. And it says on it, let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Martin Luther King Jr. Amos said that. Amos said that. And I'm going to tell you something that I mean with all of my heart. No church can prosper unless justice and righteousness set us at its heart. Whatever we do on a Sunday, however often you sing, whatever you do with your other time, if justice and righteousness are not shaping the way we live as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and citizens, then our singing is not worship. But if we are seeking to lay our lives out before him, then what we do when we sing, capture something powerful and life-giving. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah says this, 
What does God require of you? Three things. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. That's what God's calling us to do, to make our priority. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. How do we do it, Malcolm? It sounds so complicated. Well, the famous um, missionary to the Chinese, Hudson Taylor, who was the first missionary ever to dress in um, indigenous dress and learn indigenous language and live as a Chinese person amongst Chinese people, let his hair grow into a ponytail and laid on a, slept on a straw bed and was criticized for it used to say this, anyone can be a completely committed Christian. All it takes is your life. Gosh, it's gone quiet in here this morning. (laughs) Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's worship. I referred in my prayer earlier to the decision by the Republic of Ireland's population to revoke the Eighth Amendment. There will be legislation, we're told, by Christmas that will allow abortion up to 12 weeks. A number of people on uh, my Facebook feed and my social media feeds, and I use them as evangelistic and discipleship tools, and they are great for that. But I've had 20, 30, maybe 40 people attacking me behind the scenes, criticizing me, mocking me, saying all kinds of things because I was making it clear that I was praying that this um, amendment would not be removed. That does not mean that I don't believe that the rights of women are important. I don't understand why one has to pitch the rights of a vulnerable, unborn child with the rights of another human being. It's a a wrong argument to say that one matters more than the other. Both matter. In the midst of all of this, somebody said to me, God is rejoicing at this decision because conservative, narrow-minded white men like you don't get your way. And I responded back and said, look, I want to say this with all the grace that I can, but I don't believe God is rejoicing in this decision. I believe that he let the people of the Republic of Ireland make it and they will live with the consequences of it. And I believe that we will have to make a decision based not unlike this in the not too distant future. Will it go against what we want? It might, but it doesn't mean that God approves of it. There are times as a follower of Jesus Christ when you say something and you are directly opposed to your culture. And even if everybody else is telling you that you're wrong, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. When I was um, first a Christian, I, I, I wrote dramas a lot. I loved drama. And I had written about 600, and they were all stolen off a computer one time. But I remember one. Now, the last time I did this, I was about 21, 22, so I may not be able to do it now. Right. I'll, this will be my prop. Here's what it consisted of. A fella walks up onto a stage in the drama. And he's standing there, and everybody around him is hopping. This is work, it's difficult. (laughs) Whoops. Dodgy leg, I'll do the other one. Everybody around him is hopping. And he says, why are you all hopping? And one says, because everybody else is doing it. And he says, but it doesn't make sense. Why would you spend your life hopping? He said, because everybody else does it. Everybody hops, so we all hop. 
because it's the right thing to do to hop. And the fellow said, but you were given two legs. Our society's hopping, and it's hopping mad. It's hopping its way to abusing young people. It's hopping its way to making sex legal for anybody and everyone. It's hopping its way out of a moral code that God has given us that enables us to prosper. It's hopping its way away from worshiping God and into worshiping everything and anything else. And we're called to be people that worship him. And it matters because if you read the great commandments of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, we're told this is the one, the first one. Have God at the center of your life. Honor him above all things. Do not worship anything else. Why did God put that at the beginning? Is he narcissistic? Is he self-indulgent? Does God just want our worship so that he can absorb it like a magnet and say, oh, I feel so much better. Millions of people focusing on me and giving me their grace. Oh, I need it. Is he sucking it up like some kind of strange demonic figure that exists so that he can suck life out of us? It's entirely the other way around. Built into the human nature is this basic principle. You will worship something. And you will become like what you worship. Money. Power. Sex. Position. Authority. Religion. Tradition. Nationality. Family. Children. Husband. Wife. If you worship them, they become everything to you. And none of them can deliver life. God's commandment to make worship central isn't about sucking life out of us. It's about giving life to us. When we put him at the center, we put at the center the only thing, the only one that can bring real freedom and real life and real hope and real joy and real grace and real meaning and real purpose. Everything else is an idol. They promise everything, give nothing, and take anything from you, as I said last week. Worship matters not because God is some kind of narcissist, but because it's as we worship him we are free. That's why Daniel refused to worship foreign gods in Daniel chapter 3. What you worship will shape you. What you worship you will give your heart to. What you worship will determine your priorities. It will dictate your freedom. It will define your identity. It will shape your personhood. It will, it will give you the future according to its plans and purposes. So put God in that place. What does that mean for us as I draw all of this to a close? Well, in the story of the woman at the well that we've heard about a couple of times in John chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, we are told that we are those who must worship in spirit and in truth. To worship God is to worship him in spirit. It is to be open to his leading and guiding. It is to obey his word. It is to shape our lives according to his purpose. It's to allow him to be at the center of our lives. He shapes us. He gives us hope and courage. And then I come to my last observation. It's pretty much impossible, isn't it? Which of us has got the faith of Abraham? Which of us every day has that kind of perfect pedigree of worship? Well, perhaps that's why we started with this. And they worshiped him. And some doubted. 
The Greek word for doubted there means to waver, to be fearful, to be uncertain. Like the man who came to Jesus in Mark 9 for his son to be healed and said, Lord, I believe, forgive my unbelief. Like Peter, who stands on the sea in worship, then falls in doubt, and then is picked up again in worship. Like Peter, who says he'll never deny Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, then denies him and is restored. Like Peter, who tells Jesus that he is the Messiah and then quickly goes on to, to try to stop him being crucified. The theologian Frederick Buchner said, doubts, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. All of you have questions. Nobody here has perfect faith. No Christian on earth does. God is at work in it. If you can't bring God praise, then bring him your pain. If you can't offer him joy, then offer him your sorrow. Do you think it would surprise him? He knows exactly where you and I are today. And all he asks is that we are faithful, that we are honest and we are open. Bring your doubts. Bring your questions. Allow your heart to be warmed by the grace and the mercy of God and discover the great cycle of faith. We trust, we fail, we are restored and we trust a bit more. And we are drawn into an ever closer relationship with God because it is in the moments of greatest doubt and fear that our faith is strengthened most and we discover most about who we really are and who God really is. So whatever chapter you are in today, let God strengthen you by his grace and by his mercy. Stuart's going to come and lead us in a song that helps us to get back to the heart of worship. And then we're going to take bread and wine as a response to Almighty God for all that he has said to us today. Let's pray together. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. Pray for those that are watching us online and for those that are here in the room. We bring our doubts and our questions. We bring our joys and our sorrows. And we ask you to meet with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to worship you and let worship be the priority of our lives. Amen.